following is a production of Don't Hit Your Sister Recordings, created and produced by Sumner McCain. Red Jagger gave us the list of the whole gang. The vigilantes are waiting for you, plumber. Come on. Vigilante is not... No, please, they'll hang me. No, give me a chance. I'll, I'll go away and never come back. I'll, I'll do anything you say. Just give me a chance to square myself. You'll get a chance, Plumber. The circuit judges do here day after tomorrow. You'll get plenty of chance. Like all dictators who have tried to manhandle the world, Henry Plummer ended up begging for mercy. His visions of an empire stopped forever by the sudden jerk of the hangman's noose. This clip comes from the 1954 series of westerns called Stories of the Century. It depicts a scared, pleading Henry Plummer being dragged to the Bannock, Montana gallows to be hanged by the Montana vigilantes. It's dramatic and it's typical of numerous interpretations of the Wild West. Plummer's march to the gallows, the very gallows that he had built as sheriff of Bannock, Montana, was quite different, however. As opposed to pleading and struggling, Plummer walked tall, quietly to his death. Even in such a demeaning situation, he still seemed to have authority. Over his six-foot-tall frame, he wore an extravagant overcoat lined with red velvet. His eyes, just like his hair, were dark brown, almost black, and reportedly glistened like a rattlesnake's eyes. He lifted his chin and he held his head high as the vigilante slipped the noose over his head. Then he said, Give me a high drop, man. Plummer had spent 12 years in the Wild West, and his journey to Bannock, Montana was considered by some to be sordid, ripe with murders and robberies, and yet, to many, he had a reputation of being an honorable, respected citizen, a lawman, a politician. To some, Plummer's hanging was, and still is, considered to have been unjust due to a lack of evidence. To others, Plummer and his band of road agents got what they deserved. This is the story of Henry Plummer, the main native who became legendary in the Wild West as an outlaw, highwayman, and sheriff of Bannock, Montana. Henry Plummer was brought up in the town of Addison, a coastal town in what is considered down east Maine. He was born to William and Elizabeth Plummer in 1832, and he was the youngest of six children. Addison was a prosperous community due to shipbuilding and fishing, and the Plummers were a fairly prominent family in town. Henry's father, his oldest brother, and his brother-in-law were all successful sea captains and it was expected that Henry would follow in the family name and take to the sea. 
However, his weak physique and his tuberculosis made a life at sea too strenuous and proved more than Henry could handle. So he pursued an education instead. When Henry was a teenager, his father passed away and the family began to struggle financially. This was in 1851, just a couple years after the gold rush had started in California. Henry had become intrigued by the stories of folks heading west and striking it rich in the gold mines. So much so that when he was 19, he left for the west with a promise to his widowed mother that he would help the family by making his fortune in the gold mines. In April of 1852, Henry traveled to New York City where he boarded a mailboat bound for Panama. He traveled across Panama via a mule train to Panama City where he boarded another ship bound for California. 24 days after he started his journey, he arrived in San Francisco. He quickly found work in a bakery and eventually earned enough money to move to the mining camps of Nevada City about 100 miles north of San Francisco. California state documents show that after roughly a year, Plummer owned his own ranch and a mine near Nevada City. After a couple years, he sold off some of his mining shares, gave up on ranching, and purchased a bakery in Nevada City. By this point, he had impressed the citizens of Nevada City so much so that they'd persuaded him to run for marshal in 1856. He did, and at the age of 24, Henry Plummer became marshal of the third largest settlement in California. He ran as a working-class Democrat and had the support of the working class in Nevada City. Now, in California at the time, there was a newly established Committee of Vigilance, which had been organized to thwart the crime that had arrived with the gold strikes, and also to crack down on the supposed political corruption. The vigilantes were essentially the strong arm of the nativist Know-Nothing Party. The Know-Nothings were at the opposite end of the political spectrum from Henry Plummer's Democrats, and vigilantes often viewed working-class Democrats, mainly Irish Catholic immigrants, as the reason for the crime and corruption. In 1856, as Plummer assumed his new role as marshal, he witnessed the San Francisco Committee of Vigilance's lynching of a number of men, all without trial or rather, with secret trials. Don't you worry, fella. We'll give you a fair lynching. I mean, uh, hearing. Before we hang you. This was Henry's first exposure to the vigilantes. They'd suppressed and lynched his constituents, attempted to force him out of office, and committed intense political bullying. And Henry strongly opposed the vigilantes' manner of achieving justice through lynching. So from 1856 on, Henry would be somewhat outspoken regarding his dislike for the Committee of Vigilance. In his book, A Decent Orderly Lynching, Frederick Allen states, Plummer formed a deep distrust of vigilante justice, seeing its contempt for the rule of law as a direct threat to his friends, his new profession, and even his personal safety. In a sense, he saw the vigilantes as a posse of his political enemies bent on overriding his authority. As we will soon discover, in just eight years, Henry gets to reacquaint himself with another committee of vigilance, this time not the California committee, but the notorious Montana vigilantes. 
Although Henry's first year as marshal brought about a few mishaps, nothing major, a couple jailbreaks, some murders that he supposedly should have prevented, all in all, he had proved himself fit for the job, and the citizens of Nevada City appreciated Plummer's abilities, so much so that they re-elected him in 1857, with strong disfavor coming from the Committee of Vigilance. Up to this point, Henry appeared to be an upstanding individual. He was well-spoken, calm-mannered, able to handle himself, and mighty fast with a gun, when and if it was necessary. He was the trustworthy sheriff, everybody's friend. He seems to be a real upstanding fellow to me. He's a good lawman. He seems to want the best for the community, and I feel safe under his protection. He's a good man. Two years after his re-election, however, in 1859, Henry got himself into a little trouble after he shot and killed a man. This was his first killing, at least his first known killing. There are conflicting reports of how the murder happened. However, court documents help provide some clarity. John Vetter was a car dealer at a local gambling house. He and his wife Lucy had rented a room in one of Henry Plummer's buildings. John Vetter feared that while he was at work, Lucy was seeing other men. He also feared that she wanted to divorce him and also take their one-year-old daughter away from him. In the midst of his jealousy, John Vetter became abusive. Lucy became scared. She filed for divorce and sought protection. Mr. Plummer, I'm scared. I'm afraid John's going to hurt me. I'm afraid he's going to do something he's going to regret. So, doing his duty as marshal, Henry took it upon himself to protect Lucy Vetter. He even took such measures as renting a room across from hers in a local hotel. Just to keep an eye on things uh, until the divorce was finalized. Don't you worry your pretty little head, Lucy Vetter. I'll keep an eye on you. On the night that Lucy had planned on leaving town, she awaited the arrival of John Vetter, who would be dropping off their daughter. Henry Plummer waited with Lucy, and when Vetter arrived, his jealousy peaked. Whether he shot first or Henry shot first is unknown, but Vetter ended up dead after a brief shootout. Plummer turned himself in and claimed self-defense, but the court didn't buy it, and he was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 10 years in San Quentin. That same year, after the California governor had received countless letters of support for Plummer, he was granted a pardon, in part due to Plummer's poor health from tuberculosis, but also because of the many high praises sent from Nevada City's citizens regarding Plummer's outstanding civic performance and his good character. Plummer had served six months of his 10-year sentence when he was released. And after his release, having his reputation tarnished, he began to drift a little. He didn't find consistent work, and he began frequenting the local saloons and brothels. And one night at Irish Maggie's Bordello, Plummer was quote-unquote closeted with a woman when a man named W.G. Muldoon arrived at the door and demanded entrance. I know you're in there, you. Perhaps Plummer was with Muldoon's girlfriend. The reasons for his being there are unknown. However, the confrontation escalated to the point where Henry cracked Muldoon over the head with the butt end of his revolver and killed him. Henry escaped all charges, claiming self-defense. In April of 1861, Plummer got himself into another little confrontation with a man by the name of William Riley. This time, it was political. Riley was a Southern sympathizer, 
and Henry supported the North. As the Civil War had just started, opinions and emotions were already high. Riley drew his knife on Plummer, slicing into his hat and into his scalp, and Plummer responded with his pistol, shooting Riley and killing him. After getting sewn up by the local surgeon, Henry escaped from any legal charges by simply leaving town. We'll clear it all up for you. He still had friends in law enforcement, and it is believed that he was assisted in his departure. Go on, Henry. Don't look back. We'll take care of it. At this point, Henry made his way to the Washington Territory, where gold had recently been discovered. Shortly after his arrival, he and a companion ended up in a dispute with a saloon keeper named Patrick Ford. Reports say that Ford was making claims about Plummer and his friends being gold thieves. The conflict ended in another gunfight, in which Plummer was the winner. Ah, you got me. It was at this point in Henry's story that he apparently had grown tired of gunfights and the rough and ragged ways of the Wild West, and he decided to move back east. He and a companion named John Farnsworth, a.k.a. Jack Cleveland, traveled to Fort Benton, Montana, seeking a steamboat to take them down the Missouri. Jack Cleveland was actually someone who Plummer had met while he was in San Quentin, and they were not friendly, so the reasoning for their being together is unknown. It is likely that both men wanted something from the other. Upon arriving in Fort Benton, as winter was settling in, the two learned that the next boat wouldn't be for a couple weeks. Fort Benton was a quiet little town, and offered nothing to Plummer and Cleveland, so they decided to depart and head south to Bannock, Montana, where there had recently been a number of gold strikes. Shortly after their arrival in Bannock, Plummer and Cleveland found themselves in a dispute with each other. In the Goodrich Hotel Bar in Bannock, Cleveland began to get drunk and boisterous and was claiming that another man in the bar owed him a debt, to which the other man insisted he'd already paid. I paid you, Cleveland. You know I did. Leave me be. You're trying to cheat me out of more money. Henry stepped up and drew his pistol. Cleveland, I'm getting sick of this. You're causing trouble everywhere we go. He said he paid you. Henry's reputation had followed him from California, as many of the miners in Bannock had traveled from California. The miners' life was quite migratory. As gold strikes popped up throughout the West, towns sprouted up, and floods of transient miners looking to make their fortunes would populate the boomtowns. For this reason, Henry's reputation followed him wherever he went. Aside from his rumored outlaw past, it was also known that Plummer was quick with a pistol, that he'd been a marshal, and that he was ready and willing and able to protect. These were the qualities that led the citizens of Bannock to elect Henry Plummer as their new sheriff. Henry began carrying out the details of his new job immediately, starting with the hanging of a miner who had reportedly shot another miner. Plummer constructed a scaffold to be used as a gallows in Bannock and hanged the man after a miner's court had found him guilty of the shooting. It was at this same time, late in 1863, that highwaymen began robbing stagecoaches and travelers who were traveling to or from Bannock in the nearby mining town of Virginia City. Miners were scared to travel with their recently acquired gold, knowing that they would be robbed and or killed while traveling between the two towns. 
The citizens of Bannock found it strange that Sheriff Plummer was doing very little to stop the ever-increasing problem of robbery and murder on the trails outside of Bannock. By the end of 1863, at least 102 travelers had been killed. And as the crimes became more frequent, locals began to suspect that they were being committed by a well-organized local band of outlaws. I think that Sheriff Plummer is using his position as sheriff to feed info to local thieves and then they're all sharing it in the spoils. Since the mining towns were isolated from any urban center, lawlessness was common. With the rise of robberies and murders and the miners' courts proving to be ineffective, Notable high-ranking citizens took justice into their own hands and formed the Montana Vigilantes. Organized for the same reasons and with the same principles as the California Vigilante. Documents outlining how the Vigilantes would be governed state, It would operate in secret. There would be no means of appealing its decisions. The only punishment that shall be inflicted by this committee is death. And indeed, death was inflicted. If the vigilantes found out you'd stolen, lied, helped the highwaymen, or committed murder, you would cordially be invited to a Montana necktie party. In other words, hanged. If an individual could provide sources, names, or cohorts of highwaymen, they would be threatened with hanging if they didn't talk. One method of gathering information from individuals would be to put a noose around their neck and slowly raise them up off the ground. I don't know anything. Bring them back down to the ground again and ask them some more questions. Okay, I do. If they didn't get the answers they were looking for, they would simply tighten the noose a little bit and raise the individual off the ground again, lower him back down, and eventually, whoever was being interrogated, they usually gave the information up. Whether it was true or not, the vigilantes got the exact answers they were looking for. After having told the vigilance committee what they knew, they would more often than not be hanged anyway as they had proven association with criminals. This use of threatening was how the vigilantes found their way to Henry Plummer and his band of road agents called the Innocents, aptly named after their password, which was simply, Who is it? I'm innocent. Yep, come on in. It was also discovered through interrogation that the innocents all wore a scarf around their necks with a particular sailor's knot tied in it. Well, it's not that I doubt you, Henry, but just how have all of us going to keep from shooting our friends? You know, somebody in the gang we don't know. Very simple. You take your neckerchiefs and you tie it in a sailor's square knot. All of you, just like this, the same way. See? Now, we use other markings much the same way. We mark... Pay wagons, stagecoaches, banks, and mines. Now, this system of ours is food. It was in January of 1864 when 15-year-old Henry Tilden came forth with a story about being robbed by two gentlemen on a trail outside of Bannock. One of his robbers reportedly had a red-lined overcoat and a unique pistol, both of which belonged to Henry Plummer. This was enough evidence for the vigilantes. They hastily formed a posse, rode into Bannock, and gathered two Bannock deputies and Henry Plummer to be hanged. Do we need anything more? Not much. A few confessions, maybe. Do you want to go with me to the sheriff's office, Matt? I wouldn't miss it, Captain. But we don't want to go in there half-cocked. When we get Plummer, let's get him good. Come on, Frankie. The three were hanged on January 10th, 1864. 
They had not received a trial in any sort of traditional sense. They did, however, receive a vigilante-style trial, where they were essentially placed in a room, convicted, and then hanged. To this day, there is no valid evidence of Plummer's involvement in the crimes of the Bannock Road agents. After his death, however, the robberies on the trails diminished significantly, as did the fears of residents and travelers. Mary Ronan was a resident of Virginia City at this time, and she kept a journal of her time in Virginia City. And she stated, In the spring of 1864, when the work of the vigilantes had been accomplished, life became quieter, happier, more orderly and ordinary. Carrie and I and our schoolmates could roam farther and more freely over the hills, gullies, and benchlands. Coincidence or not, perhaps the road agents moved on to another mining camp or another boomtown. We'll never know. Whether Henry Plummer was guilty or not, again, we'll never know. But one thing is certain, vigilante justice prevailed, and at the age of 27, Henry Plummer paid the ultimate price, as did 21 other suspected road agents and highwaymen. That January of 1864, the vigilantes hanged 22 suspects from Bannock and all the way to Hellgate, 200 miles to the north, all supposedly part of Plummer's well-organized band of road agents. Innocent or guilty, Henry Plummer's story makes for great Western legend. And he is a legend in the West, as are the Montana vigilantes. Had it not been for Henry Plummer, the somewhat well-educated son of a sailor from down east Maine, would the Montana vigilantes even have existed? With the increase in crime came an increase in the vigilantes' presence. Lynchings were occurring as frequently as the robberies, and vigilante membership was ever-increasing. Just as Henry Plummer had witnessed in San Francisco eight years earlier, when California vigilantes hanged several men and eventually took over all state politics. Research has shown that while Plummer was in Bannock, he had voiced his opposition to the vigilantes' motives and actions, and he had warned the citizens of what could happen if they gained too much control, as he'd seen it firsthand eight years prior in San Francisco. He had expressed an intention to break up the vigilance committee before it became out of control. This sentiment, coming from the sheriff of Bannock, which was soon to become the capital of Montana Territory, could not have been well-received by the fairly politically motivated Vigilance Committee. Perhaps something had to be done to eradicate the opposition, and lynching the somewhat high-ranking Henry Plummer, under the guise of him being an outlaw, would certainly help to clear the path for a more fitting, more vigilant candidate as the Bannock Sheriff. For what it's worth, on May 7, 1993, 129 years after Plummer's hanging, a trial initiated by the Two Bridges Public Schools in Virginia City, Montana, was held in the Virginia City Courthouse. The 12 registered jurors were split 6-6 six to six on the verdict, which led Judge Barbara Brook to declare a mistrial. Had Henry been alive, he would have been freed and not tried again. And perhaps that's the way Henry's story should have ended or Plummer was indeed a two-faced, murderous outlaw who received the justice that he deserved. There stands a chance that we will never know.
Don't Hit Your Sister Recordings. Created and produced by Sumner McCain. SumnerMcCain.com.